everyone. Thanks for listening today. We are Cohen Esri Apartment Investors, and this is part of our Apartment Investing Podcast series. We have Ryan Huffman, our COO, and Lee Harris, our President and CEO. Uh, my name is Lydia Kincaid, and I'm Managing Director for CEAI Fund 23 and Fund 24. Today, we are going to dive into the weeds a bit on how to do deals. So in the last 12 to 18 months, and even before that, it's been a very, very competitive process to win contracts um, for property acquisitions. And our team has been able to get pretty creative um, when it comes to figuring out ways to win in this really, really competitive environment. Um, so maybe, Ryan, if you could kick us off, you can give us, as we talked about before, maybe the lay of the land leading up to what's been occurring um, in the last 12, 18 months, and even before then, and how we got to where we are today. And then we'll shift gears, go back and forth and talk about what we're doing in order to be more competitive. Yeah, I mean, we'll start with high level. So when the pandemic hit in early 2020, all transactions, 95% of the transactions that were on the market left the market, and everybody just seized up. And probably for, I would say, what, Lee, about 90 days, there was nothing on the market as everybody was just trying to figure out what's going on, where are we, what's the impact going to be? And we heard all kinds of doom and gloom scenarios. Um, and so capital wasn't moving. About, call it mid-2020, you started seeing things thaw out. People started putting property back out on the market particularly those folks that had funds that were on a required wind down. Um, they were putting things out on the market. And what happened is because all this capital was sitting over here on the sidelines, it rushed in to do the limited amount of deals that, that were there. Um, that simply accelerated over time and more and more capital began coming into the market, but the deal flow accelerated. Um, that obviously means we have a supply demand issue. Supply meaning property on the market to purchase and demand meaning the amount of capital that is chasing deals. And there's a significant imbalance, meaning far more demand than there is supply. Um, and so that in effect has really compressed cap rates, really in certain markets, you know, it just is really difficult to find that diamond in the rough or that gem property that you're looking for. Um, and that's really continued really for the last 18 months since about mid 2020. And Lee, I don't know, you might take it from here on your take on what's happened, if it's different than mine. No, I think it's uh, spot on what you're saying. And uh, we have some statistics that I can't rattle off the top of my head. I think you can, but uh, the number of deals we're having to look at now and underwrite uh, dwarfs the number we did three or four years ago. Uh, there's a lot of activity on the market. There have been a number of, of buyers uh, two or three years ago that are flippers now, um, and they're able to make some money uh, with the, uh, the market such as it is, but that also makes it uh, really challenging uh, to sort through where is there real value to add. Uh, and that's what our business is. We're value add folks. Uh, buying product from the 19, generally the 1980s, late 80s to mid 2000s. Uh, even I think we have a property that was a 2017 product that we're, we're closing uh, shortly here. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's now uh, a big time volume game in terms of just sifting through deals 
And I don't want it to sound like, okay, it's a volume purchasing game because it's definitely not a volume purchasing game. It's a, a volume game to actually identify real opportunity. That's correct. And, you know, to give everybody an idea, our team looks at 50 to 60 deals a week um, to find two or three that look interesting. Now, let me describe interesting. Interesting means it fits the size we want. It fits the vintage we want. Um, there's a value add story to it. And it has the basic building blocks of what our ACK platform is built on. Out of 10 of those we find interesting, two or three are going to make it through Gauntlet 1 for us, which Gauntlet 1 is we put the property through a series of tests before we even get to underwriting. We look at crime statistics in the area. We interface with the broker, look at what's happened on performance, look at what they purchased it for. If we can find out however many months ago versus today, what kind of value have they created? Um, we look at school districts. We make sure the value add story is very clear to us. Out of 10, two or three will make it to underwriting, meaning it clears that hurdle. Um, and then we put it through our full investment stratification. Out of 10, we underwrite two or three make it through to bid round and out of literally 30 deals we bid on, we're going to get one. So it, as Lee said, it's not a high volume purchasing game. It's a high volume review game to get down to that two or three that we're comfortable making offers on. So Ryan, what sort of feedback do you get commonly on why we weren't selected um, as the winner? Cause some of it is like pretty eye popping. We are several million dollars off the top offer. <laughs> yeah, several million. It's just several million. Wild. But I think yeah. it's I think it's uh, really interesting, Ryan. That you've said this a number of times that uh, we're not always the the top dollar offer. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, my view, particularly now where we're at in the cycle, and Lee, we've said it countless times, we're in a prolonged up cycle. You really need to have your box defined. And that means your investment metrics have to be clearly defined, whatever you're going to look at. We look at price in, price out. We look at yield on cost, which is an older metric. Um, we look at cash on cash returns, the yield, the equity multiple, the, um, the cap rates, certainly. But we're more concerned about price per pound than cap rates. You really don't want to color too far outside of the lines. Just because it's all gravy today, but when the music stops, you don't want to be the one without a chair. So, you know, when we bid, we really look at the deal and determine what it is worth to us. Now, that doesn't mean somebody else won't come in, Lydia, like I just said, and offer much more money than we would offer. But this is what the price is to us that fits our investment metrics. Virtually every deal we have bought, we have not been the top offer. We, we may be second. In some cases, we may be third. But we have a relationship with somebody in the stack. We either have a good, great relationship with the broker and they know we do what we say we're going to do. We may know the equity partner. We may know the, the managing member of the general partner, um, but they know who we are and they know what we do. And one of the big things that we try to protect in the market is our, is our standard of we do what we say we're going to do. We don't put a property under contract and then put people through copious extensions. We don't come back and retrade the deal unless there's a major, major oopsie that we could not see in, in the initial sweep of the property. So that is hugely important because a lot of guys are just looking for certainty of close. And so certain, depending on the seller, 
they're either going to go highest price and and or they're going to go certainty of close. And if certainty of close is there, they may not pick the highest bidder. So how how are those kind of metrics and what sellers are looking for changed our approach to even writing a contract or an offer? What sort of things do you put in there? Not without, I guess, sharing the secret sauce, but maybe just give our audience like a high level flavor of what's changed. Yeah. So Lee will chuckle at this because I'm, I'm highly conservative and I'm doing things today that if you said two years ago, I absolutely said, we do not do this. (laughs) Um, Because the reality is as a buyer, you're going to have to take more risk um, and you have to decide how much risk you are willing to take. So really price is but one component of the offer. What, is more important are the terms you are suggesting. So normal, I'll give you examples of terms. In the olden days, you would do a 30-day due diligence. You'd make a deposit first. It's soft. You can get all the money back, get a free look for 30 days. Once you hit 30 days, your deposit goes hard or a portion goes hard. And then you have, what, 45 to 60 days to close the transaction. So a total, let's just say, of 90 days on the contract. That's all changed now. So things we're having to do, well, we're having to shorten our diligence time. Um, If it's in a market we're already in, or particularly in the headquarters market, we can shorten that diligence time up and tighten it up. We are having to, to make deposits that are hard on the first day of contract, subject to title, um, survey, and environmental. So those would have to clear but that's one item that you're going to have to get comfortable putting hard money up. And it's not a small amount. It, they expect a pretty large sum of money um, to do that. And, and as an idea on one of our sales, we had somebody walk in the door with a million five hard at signing of the contract with no contingencies. So they didn't even have a contingency in place. Um, that's how, how bad they wanted it. So that's a certain term. Getting your lenders moving really quickly. So being prepared while you're negotiating the contract to sign off on third parties and, and expense that and get them moving because you can tighten up the back end time frame for closing. I would say right now, you're not going to be competitive if you're proposing more than about a 60 to 75 day total transaction from start to finish to closing. Um, so you really have to figure out your process in there to make sure you can execute on that basis. Um, so that, I mean, that's my high level of terms of what we're doing to try to separate ourselves and differentiate ourselves from others. Well, and Ryan, you said something that I will uh, modify, and that is you have to take more risk today. And I like to say, no, we manage more risk today. And a great uh, case in point is that deposit you're talking about. So uh, when we first started hearing that uh, people were putting down 500000 700 a million dollars in, in earnest money hard on day one of, of contract signing, we swallowed real hard and said, well, that's crazy. We can't do that. But then we figured out the way to manage that risk is to get an early access agreement uh, and have the team mobilized, as you kind of point out, uh, where we have our due diligence team swoop in on the property before the contract is signed, because usually it takes a couple of weeks to, to hash out the terms of a purchase and sale agreement. During that two weeks with an early access agreement, we're on site, uh, we're performing our due diligence, 
and by the time we need to sign that that PSA, we are now comfortable that we've managed the risk and we're ready to play ball just like the competition is. Yep. So it's uh, I want to make sure the audience understands we don't take risk in the traditional sense. We understand risk and we manage risk. Yep. And that's true. And I think that's a good point is there's a variety of things we can do in there to manage that risk, um, whatever you're taking on. So Lee, how does this compare to what you've seen throughout your history? Have you seen this type of competitive environment before and it's cyclical or this is really an anomaly compared to ne- Never before. Never before have I seen this level of competition. Uh, and yeah, again, in the old days, as Ryan pointed out, maybe it was a 90-day uh, process. You actually, in the old days, you could get a contingency for financing. Uh, if, you, if you today want to, to purchase a, a large property and ask for a financing contingency, you'll get laughed out of the room. Uh, so that's another thing you have to manage is to make sure that you absolutely are in a position to uh, to, to know that your financing is going to be in place. Uh, one of the things that we've done, a lever that Ryan pulls frequently, is, is our loan assumptions. And Ryan, you might go into that in a little detail and, and uh it's complex, of course, but uh, we've been able to do more deals that way. Yeah, loan assumptions are interesting because that creates a very unique set of circumstances, particularly with the basis. So let's start there. Most loan assumptions you can get at a better basis than an all-cash offer. In today's environment, because of the amount of capital chasing deals, if guys went into a loan that has a huge prepayment penalty, what they'll do is they'll take it on the market and say, well, I'll offer it to you for X if you take it with the loan, but it's X plus plus if you want a free cash offer. And so you have to analyze the loan and find out, can you still make your returns with that loan in place? And our answer is typically, yes, we can. Um, And so for a hundred basis points, lower interest, I'm gonna pay X million more for the deal. My basis isn't nearly as good. And we've seen situations where on a loan assumption, I'm trying to remember which deal it was, but our appraisal came in $3 million higher than the the price we were buying the property at because we were assuming a loan. Um, And those loans, depending on the runway left, you could take them for a little while, do your upgrade program and do a supplemental, but you can also pay down that principal faster, which creates a lot of cash on the back end, depending on what you're projecting for a sale. So Our big linchpin there is we do not do supplementals historically and typically at a transaction execution. That is one thing that somebody selling a property is going to look for because the complexity is a a supplemental has to be done by the original loan originator. And because they're usually smaller numbers, they don't like to pay attention to them and they don't like to do them. So that can elongate your timeline to close. So if you can figure out in your equity stack and your capital stack how to close just on a straight assumption, you're going to be in the money with the seller because you're not asking them to do anything different other than you're going to just assume their loan. So that is one unique aspect where we have seen a positive basis play and and getting a deal where we were not the top offer because that term was not in there. And everybody else that was assuming wanted to do the supplemental right at closing. Lydia, we've talked a lot about uh, compression of cap rates, and uh, 
we're at a point now where uh, interest rates, especially if they start to bump up and cap rates are going to intersect. And we've been in a positive leverage situation where the, the, the actual cap rate is higher than the interest rate on the, on the perm debt. At some point, there may be a crossover. We may be looking at a, uh, a negative leverage situation, or if nothing else, neutral. And so one of the, and, and that's obviously the inverse, where uh, cap rates are lower than the interest rate on the perm debt. And so what we, we need to do there is manage, again, that risk, uh, perhaps with a lower uh, debt to equity ratio, uh, maybe instead of, I think our, we're somewhere in the 65 to 68% range right now of debt to cost. And that. The other thing we're able to do is some bridge financing that has very favorable terms, uh, and that allows us uh, for for Ryan and his team to execute on the the property plan uh, with the physical improvements, uh, the increases in rent, and uh, ultimately then we're in a position to put the perm debt in place and take that bridge out uh, at, uh, at, at a, on favorable terms. If you break down, Ryan, like the of the originations we had this year, which falls into those different categories, a loan assumption or starting with a bridge loan or just standard? I think we have done, out of our six deals we did this year, I think three or four of them were um, loan assumptions. The others were bridge facility product with an insurance company. Um, and that... I will tell you that there's a lot of what they call cheap debt out there and they're going to be called debt funds. So those of you that are familiar that are looking debt funds has become the new buzzword around. I'm very dubious of debt funds. Um, we did one deal with a pseudo debt fund and it sounds great on the surface until you get into the nitty gritty of, of what the fund documents say. And then it can get a little squirrely, particularly with your equity partner. So I really prefer straight bridge debt on balance sheet um, with an insurance company as opposed to a debt fund. Um, but I, we didn't do, I don't think we did any new GSE loan originations this year. We may have done one um, just because the basis did not make sense for us to, to buy at that. And that put us way off on the pricing. Right, right. Anything, Lee, you wanted to add to that? Oh, I think that cover, I think that covers it. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll wrap this up for today and we'll look forward to next time. Thanks again.